Praise the Lord, everybody. Praise the Lord. Well, it's that night that we knew was coming, and it's finally arrived, the last night of a great, great camp meeting. A tinge of sadness uh, sweeps over us as we realize that in a few moments we'll be parting, going our various ways, and some of you and, and myself will not see each other maybe in this life ever again. But then some of you may see one another in a year at your next camp meeting, should the Lord tarry. But we're all striving to go to that place, that grand and glorious place. And may we do everything that we possibly can to keep ourselves pure. And I believe this camp meeting has done a tremendous job in getting us in shape. I've never felt, as has already been mentioned, a spirit of unity in a district like I felt here in the Texaco district. There's an excitement that is filling and pervading the air. And uh, you are well on your way to great things here in the district. Brother and Sister Chapman are beloved by our constituency, a member of the general board, a man that I honor and esteem and respect. And I thank God for men of vision like Brother Chapman. Also, Brother Carrington and the members of the district board have been most kind to me and have done a tremendous job in making this a great camp. I've thoroughly enjoyed every portion of the services that I have attended and the ministry of God's Word. The great choir that's blessed us from night to night, God bless Brother and Sister Spurgeon. And they have lifted us again tonight to realize that we are so favored to be, have been born in America or at least to be living here right now. Thank God for these United States of America. Now, I know that some of you are thinking of traveling, perhaps tonight after the service is over. Don't get in uh, too big a hurry. I'm not going to preach lengthily tonight, but I do feel a message on my heart. I want to talk to you out of my heart tonight. I thank God for the great moving spirit that we felt here last night. And only eternity will reveal the good that was accomplished in the souls that knelt around this altar and those who came on this platform to be anointed and prayed for. I tell you, it was a great, great time. And every service, though it's been different, has been charged with the presence of God. And this service tonight uh, need be no different. We feel His presence. We know He's here for a purpose. Amen. Praise God. Don't you want to see that purpose accomplished? Amen. I really want to see what God wants to do in this, the last night of this great camp meeting. I'm turning tonight, and again, I know there are a lot of things that I should say, a lot of remarks that I should make, but just suffice it for me to say, I have certainly been honored uh, to be invited to be with you. Thank you for the kind invitation. I trust the disappointment in the change of speakers was not too much. In view of the fact that your announced speaker could not come, I just uh, feel like that uh, uh, it's been a real privilege of mine to be invited to take Brother John Kershaw's place. And I've enjoyed it tremendously. But tonight, in this, the last service, I want to turn to the book of Exodus, the 12th chapter, and the 29th and 30th verses. And it came to pass that at midnight, the Lord smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh that sat on his throne, 
unto the firstborn of the captive that was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. And there was a great cry, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where there was not one dead. Three weeks ago today, a young Marine stationed in California, his family lives in Nashville, he and his buddy had some time off for the weekend, decided to go on a little hunting trip. They secured a jeep and was rolling in that jeep over the sloping hillsides in the area where they were stationed. They came to a mound or a little hill, and their jeep topped over that hill, and not knowing that directly on the other side of that mound was an open mine shaft 150 feet deep. That jeep went head first down into that open mine shaft. The other boy was killed instantly, and the young man whose relatives live in Nashville sustained only a broken leg and was down in that shaft from Friday afternoon until early Monday morning with no one really knowing where they were. Marines were out scouring the countryside. And finally, in the early morning hours of that Monday, which has been now less than three weeks ago, they came upon this open mine shaft. And hearing cries of distress, they found that that jeep and its occupants, one dead and one living, was down in the bottom of that shaft. The Marines who came upon that uh, tragedy called down to the young boy, 23 years of age, father of an eight-month-old child, a wife back at the base, and said, We cannot get you out by ourselves. We're going to have to go and secure help, but we'll be back. The boy, having already been down there with a dead body since Friday, almost panicked and did. The hours stretched and no one came back. Could it be that they forgot him? Could it be that they forgot where he was? Had they themselves lost the open mine shaft? And so, because the hours were passing so slowly, and the day was dragging by, and he was on the verge of hysteria. He sought to do something that might again call attention to his plight. So he managed to get a fire going, and he lit one of the tires on that jeep, thinking that the black smoke of a burning tire would ascend out of that 150-foot deep hole and they would again locate him. When the fire was burning and the smoke was ascending, just at that moment,
The Marines had not lost him. They had arrived back with sufficient help to get down in the hole where he was. And they were just starting their descent into that hole when all of a sudden the fire of the tire reached the gasoline tank of the jeep. And with a loud explosion, the boy was killed instantly. I stood one night some years ago in the edge of a crowd that had been attracted by the glowing, burning light in the heavens. A house was on fire and was burning up. The crowd had gathered, and I was one in that crowd, not knowing the involvement or the implications. But the police were on duty, and someone whispered in the crowd, There are seven children in that house. When word reached the crowd, various ones began to try to break through, for they could almost hear the whimpering sobs of children that were dying in the inferno. For by now the fire had reached the roof, and the roof had caved in. But the policeman on duty would not allow anybody to go but just so far, because to go into that burning house would further endanger life. So we stood there in muted silence as we watched the final collapse of that house, knowing that seven little children were inside and not a one of them escaped. I, as a pastor, have stood by the bed of a person dying and have heard the cry of loved ones as they knew there was no help for that individual. I have heard the cry of someone in pain. I have heard the cry of someone disappointed. I have heard the cry of a child. And I have heard the cry of someone in prayer. But there has never been a cry there will never be a cry like the cry of a soul that's perishing without God. Amen. 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 I want us tonight on this, the last night of this camp meeting, to attune our ears to the cries of help. Won't somebody help me? Won't somebody help me? Won't somebody help me? The great Apostle Paul had a vision one night. And in that vision was a Macedonian. And that Macedonian was crying for help. Come over into Macedonia and help us. Come over into Macedonia and help us. Paul made haste because the cry was one of urgency. He couldn't rest until the trip was planned and he was on his way. And he finally set foot in that area where the cry was coming from. But when he got there, no one was crying for help. There was no man on bended knee crying, Paul, help us. 
There was no one in the streets running up and down, wringing their hands, saying, Help us. Life was going on just as it had gone on for years prior to that time. What must it have been that Paul heard in that night vision? God looked down upon a nation and a city and saw their need that they didn't even know about and placed within them a cry for help that they themselves were not even making. Amen. Mother, let me tell you something. When you call that wayward daughter and you say, Honey, I want to invite you to a revival meeting that's going on. And all of a sudden she says, Mom, don't talk to me about church anymore. And she hangs the phone up in your ear. And you fall backward away from that phone, weeping because of what's just happened. Let me tell you what has happened. Not what you thought happened, but what really happened. When she slammed that receiver up on that phone, she was saying, Mama, help me. Help me, Mama. I need help. Oh, but it didn't sound like that to me. But that's really what it was. God took her words of sarcasm and changed it to a cry for help. That's exactly what she was doing. She was wanting somebody to keep on inviting her, to keep on praying, to keep on talking to her about her soul's needs. Dad, when you talk to that boy, that son that's done everything in the books, been a disgrace to the family, and you say, son, as you lay your hand upon his shoulder, son, I love you. I want to see you quit doing what you're doing. I'd like to see you really living for God. And he turns and wheels away from that loving hand and stalks out of the house and slams the door and you hear the quick start of a motor and he careens out of the driveway and on two wheels spins up the road and out into the night to another night of dissipation. Let me tell you what that boy did when he walked out of that door and slammed the door and got in his car. It wasn't what you think he was doing. He was crying all the way out that house and all the way up that road. Help me, somebody. Somebody help me. I want to be helped. Don't stop praying for me. Don't give up on me. I don't know why I'm doing what I'm doing. I don't know why I'm going off into the night to live the life I'm living. But somebody help me. Oh, friend, Macedonia tonight is calling for help. They may not be on bended knee. They may not be screaming to the top of their lungs. They may not be wringing their hands, but as they run away from us, they're crying, Help! 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 I want you to hear it tonight. There's a cry ascending from the man that passes you on the street, from the woman that drives by you on the highway. They're crying, oh, but they don't look like they are. But God is taking their need that they don't even know about and putting it into our own ears as a cry for help. Somebody, 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 help me.
Amen. Hallelujah. Ha. God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth. He told Noah to build an ark. When it was all finished, a hundred years or so had gone by. God told Noah to go in, and God shut the door. The floodwaters began to swirl. The Scripture says the conclusion of the matter was that in all flesh died that moved upon the earth. I couldn't help but recall this time of catastrophe as I read this week's newspaper of the 10 to 12 foot wall of water that swept down through that canyon. And those that were talking on the telephone had to hang up and said, we got to go. And then all of a sudden that water caught up with them. And all the cries that must have gone up from that canyon but would be but a drop in the bucket to the cries of those who saw the flood waters swirling up about them as they climbed to the highest hill, reached for the lowest limb, and then the next lowest limb, and then the highest limb, and the waters kept coming up and up and up. The screams and the cries that must have floated over those flood waters in Noah's days was beyond the mind to imagine. And we don't hear them tonight because we weren't there. And we'll be able to go away from hearing about a tragedy and not let it affect our sleep tonight because there's something about it when you don't see it with your eyes and you don't hear it with your ears. It comes a time when you just get it out of your system. But when I walk to the casket, that closed casket of that young Marine just a few days ago, and that Marine honor guard was standing by him. It was days that I couldn't get it out of my mind. A young man down in the bottom of a hundred and foot, fifty foot mine shaft, crying for help, doing everything that he could to try to get out of there, lighting a tire and letting the black smoke ascend, not knowing that in a few minutes that fire would ignite that gasoline tank, and then the screams that would come when his body was covered with fire, and then final death. couldn't sleep. But then on top of that echoed to me a perfectly sane individual dressed in the raiments of fine clothes and living it up, calling out from a soul that was distressed, help me, help me, help me, won't somebody help? story comes out of the pages of the Old Testament, the book of Genesis, to be specific, about the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Lot moved into them. God again saw the wickedness that was there and determined to destroy those cities, but He said, I cannot hide from Abraham that thing that I will do. And when He told Abraham, Abraham began an intercessory prayer. God, if you can find 50 righteous, would you spare it? Yes. 40, 30, 20, horror of horrors, God couldn't even find 10 righteous in all of the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. The angel had to take Lot and just literally lead him out of the city along with his wife and daughters. Then the story tells us that when they got to the 
brow of the cliff just before they went on the other side of the hill that Lot's wife turned and looked around. Now you've heard a lot of sermons as to why Lot's wife turned and looked behind her. There's a lot of speculation as to why she did. Some have said she just didn't want to give up her society. Some said she thought about her card-playing friends and, and uh, she didn't want to be pulled away from her fine home and, and the things that she had in the twin cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. But let me add one more bit of speculation, one more reason why I think perhaps Lot's wife turned and looked around. Could it have been that after years of living in Sodom and Gomorrah, without being the witness that she and Lot could have been, and when they got to the brow of that cliff, and already the hell fire and brimstone was raining down on the city, and she heard the cries of help, that remorse set in, and she couldn't help but turn and look back. I wonder after this service is over tonight, and we drive away from this campground, and we only came to see and be seen, and we really didn't put our best into it. There were standing on either side of us every night sinners, people who needed God. And we were so anxious for the service to be over that we could get out and go and have our merry time of fellowship. We really didn't do anything about it. We drive away, and then the report comes that that person that was at the camp meeting went out into eternity without God. What kind of remorse is going to hit us? As we realized that they were standing right in our midst all the time saying, Won't somebody help me? Won't somebody help me? Won't somebody help me? And we were so deaf to the cry of help that we didn't do anything. We didn't do anything about it. It was a tenth plague in Egypt. The death angel was going to now pass through. The firstborn in all the Egyptian homes were slain. And the scripture text that I read to you said, And there was a great cry in Egypt. And no doubt there was. When parents ran into the joining bedrooms and heard the gurgling struggles of an older boy or an older daughter that was going out into eternity and not one thing could be done for them. There was a great cry in Egypt. I've told you these incidents. But I bring you face to face with the reality tonight. On this, the last night of this camp meeting, I want your ears to be unstopped. All around us here and back in your own hometowns are people, dignified society people, low down and down and outers that are moving about us every day crying, Help me! Help me! Won't somebody come? to help me. And we stand piously in our choirs and we sing, rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Jesus is merciful. Jesus will save and go on our merry way. Can we be the same? Can we ever be the same when we know that they're crying, help? The story is told of George W. Truitt, 47 years pastor of the largest church in Dallas, Texas. At the end of his life, he was dying sick in the hospital in Dallas, Texas. The no visitor sign was placed on his door.
Only his wife was permitted to stay in the room with him. He was well up in years, and any excitement might throw him into heart failure. So no one could go in. But one day, there was a light knock on the door. And when Mrs. Truitt opened the door, there was a young man standing there with a sad look on his face. And he said, Mrs. Truitt, I know there's a no visitor sign on the door, but your husband helped me years ago as a struggling young minister. And I wonder if you wouldn't just permit me to step right inside the room. And I wouldn't say a word to him. But I just wanted to see him for one more time before he leaves this life. They were carrying on this conversation out in the hallway, and Miss Truitt was trying to make up her mind as to whether or not to let him in. And finally she decided, yes, I'll let you step just on the inside, but don't say a word. Don't go near the bed. And when they opened the door and stepped inside that large hospital room and started toward the bed... The bed was empty. Dr. Truitt was not in the bed. Their attention was directed from the bed around to the big open window that overlooked the city of Dallas. And there Dr. Truitt, in his weakened condition, was standing in that window with his arms stretched out toward the city. And they heard his weakened cry saying, Oh, Dallas, oh, Dallas, why won't you come to God? That man doesn't have or didn't have the experience that you and I have. He got out of his bed from the pleas of the cries of a city that was desperately wicked. In his weakened condition, cried, Oh, Dallas, why won't you come to God? Dr. Billy Graham, noted evangelist of our day, holds great citywide crusades across our land and around the world. It was told that in one large city crusade where thousands of people were filling the Colosseum each night, that one night, ministers all over that city, it was about two in the morning, their phone began to ring one after the other. And when they would pick the phone up and answer in a sleepy voice, hello, they heard the sobbings of Dr. Billy Graham. And he was saying to them, he said, I cannot sleep. The wickedness of this city has reached me. Would you mind to get out of your bed and come down to my hotel room and join with me in the rest of the night of prayer? So out of their beds and from all over the city, they converged on that great downtown hotel, walked through the lobby, pushed the button of the elevator, and ascended up to the floor where his private room was, knocked on the door, and was personally admitted by a tear-stained-faced Dr. Billy Graham as they fell on their faces to cry with him about a city's need. Somehow or another, they was hearing the cries for help. But again, folks, those people don't have the message that you and I have. How many times have we stayed awake all night long? How many times have we got out of our bed with a plaintive cry for help in our ears and we've fallen on our faces on cold floors and cried the rest of the night? I'm afraid that in our complacency and in our security that we are not having sensitive ears to those who are saying, Help me! Won't somebody help me? Won't somebody help me? Amen. Amen. I want to tell you a little bit about America. They sang about it tonight and we're all thankful for it. But this is not a nation that has never heard the gospel. 
But this is a nation that's hearing it every day and in every kind of way. It's bad enough to be lost when it's dark. But to get lost in broad open daylight is a terrible thing. And that's where America is tonight or today. Lost in broad open daylight. Ours is a nation that's lost in the light. Amen. One veteran Washington correspondent of the London Daily Express said, America is a great swarming ant heap of a country in the jumbo swirl of riches and plenty. It's all here, heaped up and overflowing and TV'd and air-conditioned and super-automobiled and stylized and remotely controlled, jumbo-sized and fabulous. Everything is painless and effortless and often brainless. Every day, 45 million aspirin tablets are swallowed, 20 million sleeping tablets are swallowed, and 20 million wake-up tablets are swallowed. Doctors are writing 40 million prescriptions a year for tranquilizers. It seems we need pills to put us to sleep, pills to wake us up, and pills to keep us going in between. Spiritually hungry, so we fill our stomachs. Long for peace, so we take pills. Crave security, go out and make money. Demand relaxation and get drunk. Need God, but worship the devil. Need heaven, but take hell. Need salvation, but love sin. We're not only lost, but we're lost in broad open daylight. For America is literally flooded with the light. More Bibles than there has ever been. More preaching, more churches, more broadcasts, more publications. Better than it's ever been before, and yet America is still lost. The sole purpose of the Bible is to tell us the wonderful story of His grace and to answer that age-old question, What must I do to be saved? And more people are reading the Bible than ever before. But to all of them, or the most of them, it just doesn't make sense. The gospel is a puzzle, and the theologians are saying it's myths, fairy tales. We know more about its writers, more about its history, but nothing about its spirit, its message, its power. The Bible has been modernized to make it up to date. And the gospel has been streamlined to make it more popular. But the tragic part is that those that are doing it are not only lost themselves, but they're causing others to be lost in the daylight of God's Word. Help. Help. Pentecostals, the cry of help is needing to reach our ears. That Ethiopian eunuch was going back home from Jerusalem, the center of religious activity of his day, where the temple was, the synagogues, the priest. But when he left Jerusalem, where all of religion was in that day, he left heavy-hearted. He hadn't found the answer, but he was still interested, and he was riding along in that chariot, reading out of the scrolls. He was lost, but he was lost right in the big middle of the Word of God. Amen. Philip was standing at the crossroads, and the Spirit said, Go join yourself to that chariot. He ran along by the side long enough to hear that the eunuch was reading. And he was reading, he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. 
Philip said, Understandest thou what thou readest? The man said, How can I accept somebody? Help me. Help me. Help me. Oh, they're searching, they're reading, they're having their home Bible studies, they're having their home prayer meetings, but they're still lost, lost in the light of God's Word. They're only getting fragments, they're only getting just little excerpts of it, they're not getting the real truth. And oh, that's where you and I must come in. Help, won't somebody help? We've got to get to them with a message of truth and begin right there and preach unto them Jesus and all that it takes to be born again. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. The promise is unto you and to your children, to them that are far off, even to as many as the Lord our God should call. Hallelujah. Let me illustrate it on this wise. I'm drawing on my imagination. There's nothing more pathetic than a child lost, lost in a big department store or lost in a city. So young that he cannot give any information, probably only able to blurt out his first name. Can't even tell his last name, nor a street address, nor a phone number. There's nothing more pathetic than a child that's lost. And the sobbing hysteria that's shaking the little body. And quite naturally, the policeman comes along to offer his assistance. And the little boy's folks are sought out, but not to be found. Finally, the little boy is taken down to the police station. And their strong, burly men, policemen in their uniforms, are trying to stop the sobbing. One of them says, I know what I'll do. I know every little boy loves candy. I'll go get him some candy. So he goes down to the store, and he comes back with a bag of candy. And sure enough, when the boy sees the candy, he stops his sobbing. And he begins to cram his mouth full with that sweet candy that any little boy really loves so well. But as even as the saliva is running down over his chin and the candy is filling his mouth, all of a sudden he remembers, I'm lost. And so he spits the candy out and the crying starts again. He still doesn't have his mommy or his dad. Another big strong policeman says, I know every little boy loves little cars. I'm going to go buy him a car. So he goes down to the dime store and he comes back with several little cars. And sure enough, when he puts them down on the table in front of the little boy, his crying stops again as he takes those cars and runs them back and forth over the table. But then even while he's playing, it clinks in his mind, I'm lost, I'm lost. And so he pushes the cars aside and he begins to sob again. Another policeman goes out and gets him a big ice cream cone. And sure enough, his sob stops again as an ice cream cone is handed to him. And it's dripping off of the cone as he's so enjoying it. But then for a moment, and then his mind goes back to the fact that he's lost. He's lost. And so the ice cream loses its enticement. And that's where the world is tonight. They're lost. They're lost. And the sack of candy is thrust toward them. Sign this card and become a member of this congregation and everything's all right. So they grab the sack of candy, sign the card, and they're a part of a large church. But then in the lonely hours of night, it comes in on them. I still don't feel right. 
I'm still lost. And so they go back to that same pastor that had them sign the card. And he says, all right, I'm going to give you a Sunday school class. You always wanted to do something. I'm going to give you an ice cream cone. You take this class. That'll, that'll help you forget about your own self. You teach this class. And so in his lost condition, he stands before a class to teach them. But again, on the lonely nights when the darkness has covered him over, he realizes that in spite of the fact that he's a Sunday school teacher in a big denomination, he's still empty on the inside. And he goes back to the pastor and he says, well, I'm going to give you some little cars to play with. I've got a duck blind in the best place where ducks fly over. I'm going to take you hunting with me. And I've got a box at the arena and we're going to go watch every ball game and you'll sit right in the box with me. Oh yeah, you're going to be on the list of all of the activities. Oh yeah, and for a while that satisfies them too. But there comes a day when the ice cream and the candy and the cars will not take the place of that pounding that's going on in their soul. I'm lost. I'm lost. Somebody come to me with more than ice cream and candy and cars. And all of a sudden, there steps into the foyer of that police station. The dad. Has anybody seen a little boy? And those ears perk up. The familiar voice. Dad. He pushes aside all of those playthings and all of that candy that he loves so well. And runs into the arm of his father. That's where we are tonight. Hallelujah. They're crying for help. They're getting answers that are not satisfying. They're getting games to play with. They're getting toys to play with. But the soul is still crying out. Amen. And here you and I are. Understandest thou what thou readest? Has anybody seen a little boy? Has anybody seen a little girl? I've come to tell them about Jesus and that He alone can satisfy. Hallelujah. The longing of the soul. Amen. Help. Won't somebody help? You may have heard the cry of help of someone in an automobile accident. You may have heard the sobbing cry of a little boy that's been lost in the natural. You may have heard the sobbing cry of a child that was sick with a high fever. But friend, until you really hear the cry of a perishing soul and really hear it, you're not going to do anything but sit back where you are. But once you hear that cry, you're going to wade through everything to get to that soul because you'll never be the same when you realize that they're crying for help. Revival was on in our church a number of years ago. It was one of those revivals that was really going. Ten men in one night was filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost. Snow on the ground, ice on the streets. But it didn't stop the people from coming, for revival fires were burning. One night, a phone call, a distressed voice, saying, I haven't been to the revival but it's reached me. I'm miserable. I said, well, why don't you come tonight? He said, man, I can't wait until tonight. I want to pray right now. I said, you mean right now? Yes. Can you help me now? 
I said, I'll be at the church as soon as I can. I got out of my warm bed and onto those icy roads and drove carefully to the church. Got there before he did. Turned the heat up. Turned the lights on. I was waiting for him. When he came in, his face was pale and his hands were trembling and I ran to him. Took him in my arms and all but carried him there to the altar as we both fell there in a heap. And we cried and prayed until the early morning hours. Finally, victory came. He lifted up his hands and God began to fill him with his presence. The revival that night was needless to say set on fire because it had spread through our people of how that in the early morning hours he had been delivered, set free. There he was to testify to the fact. What a glorious service that night and all the rest of that revival. That young man kept coming. He had a family. But the snow melted and the ice thawed and springtime was on and Wayne was a racing car enthusiast. He began to tinker around with his car, not really intending to to do much about it, just tinkered around with it, got the motor going good again and took it out for a try. And then it got in his blood, racing, racing. So he began to miss services. No amount of persuasion could get Wayne to come back. He went on his way. And one Sunday night, several months later, as our people felt the heaviness of a burden fall upon them, we gathered in and around the altar, and we prayed. It wasn't a loud type of praying. It was a burden tone. And then in a moment of quietness, there was a message of tongues and interpretation. And it went on this wise. There's a lost sheep of mine who is not with you this night, who within 24 hours will know danger such as he has never known. And we were admonished to pray, and we prayed, not knowing what or who the Lord was speaking about. But a young lady in the altar became unusually burdened for her brother. She got out of the service and went to her car and drove clear across town and knocked on her brother's door and said, Wayne, I want to tell you about the service we just had and the message of tongues and interpretation. And Wayne, I believe it was you. Wayne wasn't crying for help. He said, go away, sister. When I get ready to come for God, come to God, I will. But he was crying. Under that indifference and that unconcernedness, he was crying for help. Help. He was down in the bottom of a 150-foot shaft, so it was, and we was trying to reach him, but we didn't reach him. The newspaper reporter didn't realize that when he wrote up the article on Tuesday that he was going to describe the fulfillment of the message of tongues and interpretation to a T. For the message, you will remember, said he will know such fear, such as he has never known. And the article says that Wayne apparently thought the mirror was a window. And the closet, a doorway to the fresh air, which would have saved him. The body of Wayne was found by his father shortly before noon yesterday. It was lying on the floor of the bedroom beside a charred mattress. When investigators arrived, the television set, though damaged by the fire, was still playing. A set of barbells used by Wayne to condition his arms and shoulders was found on the floor beside the body. The corner of the room in which the body lay was in complete disorder with curtains and curtain rods torn and pulled away from the window where a large air conditioning unit had apparently stood between young Wayne and life. Wayne, the father of three children, apparently was killed 
when he was fell asleep with a lighted cigarette in his hands, tore the curtains down from the windows, broke a mirror on a door. In the, those moments of time, he was in a frenzy trying to get out of that room that was filled with smoke, and he failed the fulfillment of the message of tongues and interpretation that said, A lost sheep of mine, one time known me, not with you in service this night. Within 24 hours will know fear such as he has never known. I go back to the standing by the side of that house that contained seven little children, and I feel that helpless feeling sweep over me as I know I cannot run into the fire. I go to that open mind shaft in my mind where down at the bottom, 150 foot deep, was a young man with only a broken leg, waiting for help, crying for help, trying to attract the attention of somebody, getting desperate to the lighting of a tire, not knowing that the gasoline tank was going to explode. And how many explosions are going to happen to somebody near us before we reach the lost? Oh, how many have already slipped from between our fingers before we ever get to those that we need to get to? I have tonight hearing in my ears the cry of help, 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 help. Won't somebody help me? Oh. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. There may be sitting by you right now somebody that has a look of unconcernedness on their face. They would be the last one that you would think would be crying for help, but all the time down on the inside they're saying, Help me. Help me. Won't somebody help me? Heads are bowed and eyes are closed. Help. Mother, remember that daughter that hung the phone up on you? She was saying, Mama, don't stop praying for me. Don't give up on me. I'm miserable, but I don't know what to do with my misery. So I lash back at you and I tell you to Stop inviting me to the revival and hang the phone up on you. But, Mama, if you really knew, I was just really crying for help. Oh, God. Oh, God. And while my presence envelops thee and my love draws you out of your own self, but yet you rebel, let you draw, yet you draw back from my presence, I would have you know that I love you, that I love you beyond even human words to say. My love reaches you this night, for I have loved you for a long while. And though you have run from my presence often, I've always been there to overshadow you. And only eternity will reveal those things that I've spared you from. 
But this night my presence is grieved because you have so long turned away from me. And when you walk away from me this night, my presence will not go with you. And you will go out, yea, into a night that will be darker than you have ever known. For though my presence has gone with you in other, other times, that darkness has not been so still and so grotesque. But this night when you go away from my presence again, then you will know the darkness, the great darkness that will envelop you. And yea, you will walk alone. The path will be lonely. You will cry out at times, O oh God, where are you? But I will not answer thee, because oftentimes I have come to deliver you. And this night I have come. But you, you will need to do that that you know you need to do even now. Yet, ere my presence slips away from you, and you walk in darkness and in loneliness. Help. 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 Somebody help me. Help me. Congregation, as you stand quietly and reverently, backslider, cold and indifferent, help, somebody help me. cry of somebody next to you and tenderly could you turn to them and say I'll go with you I'll walk with you down to that altar it really isn't as far as it seems down there it's just because you've never been come on I'll go with you come on young man come on Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. He's crying for help. Though he walked away, he's crying for help. He doesn't really know what to do. He's frustrated and Satan has caused him to feel like there's no hope. Don't give up on him. 
And you've waited for days that apparently nobody's come your way. We're coming your way tonight. We've got long ropes to reach down to you. We're going to help you get out. We're going to help you. Don't do anything desperate. Don't set off an explosion that will end you today. So we're here to help you. We're on our way down to where you are. But not only are we on our way down, but... Jesus is coming to right where you stand. Oh, God. Don't pass me by, Lord. Don't pass me by. While on others thou art calling. Don't pass me by. Don't pass me by. Amen. Amen. All right. Shall we all gather in as close as we can? Somebody help. Oh, somebody help me. Help them, folks. Help them find God. They're lost. Like a lost child, they're reaching for every straw.